Don't make orders easy to understand. Make them impossible to misunderstand. DigitalMarketingRadio.com The Big Interview with David Bain. What is the best way to structure the setup of a remote working team? What are the pitfalls of setting up a remote team and how can they be overcome? And you've decided to hire a remote digital marketing team. Where's the best place to start? Those are just three of the questions that I intend to ask our special guest today, Liam Martin. Liam, welcome to DMR. Thanks for having me, David. Well, welcome. Well, Liam's CMO and co-founder of Staff.com, a remote staffing platform that only allows to hire long-term remote labour. So, Liam, we discussed the benefits of outsourcing in an interview that we recorded together about two years ago, actually. So how do you feel that outsourcing has evolved over the last couple of years? That's an interesting question. In 2012, there was a huge... The space was really quite open and the space was evolving. I think about maybe 1% of all staffing was run remotely. Uh, and I'm, t- I'm talking about staffing agencies. Now we're probably about 4 to 5%. So we've seen a 400 to 500% jump in the space in just that amount of time. Um, that means a huge you know, exposure to a lot more different ecosystems. You've seen platforms like uh, Fiverr. As an example, mm. that's a recent company, $5 Tasks, very interesting. Mechanical Turk has absolutely exploded now. There are all of these companies that are connected to Mechanical Turk that really just focus that huge crowdsourcing network to figure out uh, any other type of task that you'd absolutely want. There's super interesting companies that now do crowdsource translation, as an example. Uh, so you'll have people that will be learning another language. They'll have quizzes given to them <clears throat> based off of um, to translate pieces of text, and they'll actually crowdsource that solution. So basically, people are gamifying actual translations that you're paying for on the other end. And then on the higher end, platforms like us that offer full-time remote labor, um, we've seen our numbers explode in that short amount of time. Really, you're seeing a labor market that is truly evolving, moving from small little projects to longer and longer term contracts to basically full-time employment and employees that are really now working full-time remotely, whether it's guys in Southeast Asia that are making, you know, one to $2,000 a month uh, that are absolutely fantastic at their jobs and they're making a lot of money in, you know, in relative to their countries but uh, can work wherever they want. We actually have a very interesting story connected to that too. And then compared to someone in San Francisco who maybe, you know, is going to get paid 120 to 150,000 that still wants to work remotely and is some of the best labor in the world. We actually had a hire that we recently uh, did with this, uh, this employee out of, uh, well, a country in Southeast Asia. And this person competed in the, I believe it was the Facebook hackathon and got eighth or ninth in that hackathon. And this is a huge deal. And he got offers from all the top tech companies, but he decided to work with us for a fraction of what his original salary would have been with Facebook or any of these other types of companies because he didn't want to move. He wanted to work remotely. So we keep him in his 
country of origin. He's very happy working from home. And we get a we get an employee of, you know, Facebook quality for I would say probably about a twentieth of the cost. Wow. Well, talking about that interview that we did back in 2012, two years ago, um, you did offer a lot of a lot of great information there. So I'm going to embed that interview in the digital mar- magazine, and um, so people will be able to view that as well. Um, but um, in terms of where we are now, you're saying that four um, percent of firms are actively using remote working in some way. Can you foresee a situation where in 10 years time or so, the majority of companies will be using remote workers? I would say from a conservative estimate, probably in the next 10 years, you're seeing 25% uh, will be doing remote working agreements. Um, And on the liberal estimate, probably 50 to 60%. So we're seeing what is a $500 billion industry. Conservatively, 100 billion of that will be moving remote to possibly 250 billion of that within the next 10 years. So there's a big shift that's happening and it's really quite open right now. There's a lot of platforms that are trying to do it. Uh, Odesk and Elance, freelancer.com, Guru are fantastic companies that are doing the contract project space very, very well and trying to break into the more long-term work platform uh, like staff.com. And then on the lower end, you've got Mechanical Turk and Fiverr and these sort of micro-task companies, which may actually evolve the way that work is done. Um, I personally don't believe that that's the vision and the future of work. I believe the future of work is exactly what we're doing now, but just not connected to a particular space or time. So what I mean by that is they can work wherever they want, however they want, with whoever they want, anywhere in the world, uh, and just do the same type of work that they're doing now, except remotely. There's another vision of work, which is micro tasks, being able to crowdsource, perform little projects, having basically a workforce of full-time contractors. And I think there always will be a niche for that. But I mean, I don't know about you, but for us, we have 60 plus people in the company now. They're all full time. They all work with us, you know, eight days a week or so. Yeah, eight hours a day, five <laughs> days a week. And we're very, very happy with uh, with what they're doing as a company. And we really wouldn't we need more of a commitment than someone who's just going to build us a website for two hundred dollars and and run off. So we're kind of doubling down on the idea that the future of work is these long-term working relationships just the way that they are right now, except disconnected from time and space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've I've used quite a few individuals for one-off projects in the past. And yep. um, now I've got um, three people who are working for me on a part-time basis, um, but just uh, consistently working for me every single month. And um, mm-hmm. if someone gets to know your business, um, they're going to have that... Um, investment that emotional investment in what you do and be more reliable and get to know what you want them to do as well and yeah um so that i I certainly understand that perspective so firms not using remote working at the moment um are they falling further and further behind in terms of competitiveness against their competitors i spoke with a company just this week i spoke with their vp of sales of a company that's doing over $100 million a year. And they are very quickly 
through attrition damage um, becoming the first company in their space. And they, they went from nothing three years ago to the second in their space. And they're doing the entire thing through um, remote sales teams. They're able to leverage. So the basics of software as a service companies, as an example, is th there's a golden rule. It's if it's under $1,000 annual recurring revenue, ARR, <clears throat> you can't have a salesperson do it because it's just too expensive to actually hire that talent to be able to bring that customer through the sales funnel. Mm. If it's over $1,000, you can basically afford it. If it's under $1,000, it no longer becomes viable. Well, these guys are underbidding everyone in the space. Their solution is as good as the top competitor. It costs about half the amount. And since they're running remote sales teams, they're able to provide that high quality touch process and bring people through the sales funnel at a fraction of the cost. So they actually are really creating an environment where either the top competitor is either going to have to change their pricing or something drastic will have to happen because they're very quickly eating up that market share of that top competitor because they just have a more efficient machine. So are people, you know, are, are people, are companies being left behind? In some cases, yes. It really depends on your industry. But in my opinion, if you are not at least learning how remote management processes work, and, and adding that to your executive and management team, then you're leaving yourself open to one of these companies that can come in, they have a much more efficient sales process or marketing process, and can absolutely, you know, eat your lunch within six to 12 months, which is what this company is doing. And do you have enough time to react to something like that, particularly with how businesses run today? I know for us, you know, if we lost 30 to 40% of our monthly revenue, it would be very difficult for us to adapt to that new type of situation. And this is what I think is, in this particular instance, is quite possible with uh, remote staffing. Okay, so that's um, talking a little bit about um, remote sales teams. Is it feasible, though, to outsource a department that has lots of different um, facets to it? So I'm thinking of a digital marketing department, Um an SEO person, email marketing person, perhaps affiliate person. Um, so lots of different skill sets there. And maybe you can't find those skill sets in one location. So you've got individuals in, in different locations. Is that effective? Is that easy to manage? Um, or would you rather, would you recommend everyone to be in the same location if you're outsourcing? So you have to understand first off, and this is what I do with a lot of clients that <clears throat> that work with us, you have to understand how to manage remote employees. And when I talk about remote employees, I'm not theoretically talking about someone who costs less. When everybody, when everybody thinks about outsourcing, they think about cheaper mm. and not us. We actually hire more expensive people in some cases. But I'm not looking for the best affiliate manager in San Francisco. I'm looking for the best affiliate manager, period or I'm looking for the best affiliate manager at this price point. So that expands my net to a global stage. And then I can look at, um, maybe there's a good guy in San Francisco, but maybe there's 10 great guys in middle America or 10 great guys in Eastern Europe that you know will work 
half for half the amount, or maybe they'll work for double, but maybe their output is going to be much better. Mm. So for us, it's one of those things that we just look at, okay, who's the best person for the job? Let's actually go and do that. The second part is once you actually hire that person, like we have a lot of clients that say, oh, we want to hire 20 or 30 people. And then I'll say, well, have you ever done any type of remote staffing before? No, but we're ready to do it. Okay, well, you know what? Let's stop here for a moment. Why don't you hire one person? And then I'm going to show you how to actually build uh, the remote processes that you need within your business. And then once you've conquered that process, you can then scale. So, I mean, the big fundamental difference is that remote staffing is disconnected from time and space. So as an example, it's about 7.20 p.m. where I'm at. Um, my team in the Philippines is probably getting up at this point. Uh, I've been working throughout the day. I have probably been sending emails to them throughout the day. And then when they wake up, they're actually going to go and do that work. So they're not physically in the same office. If I have Johnny that sits right next to me and Johnny does something wrong, I can show them how to do it properly, show him how to do it properly. If Johnny is 10,000 miles away, I can't do that. Not only that, I'm ending, you know, right after this call, I'm, I'm off. I'm done with my work day. Uh, someone could work for 12 hours or eight hours and work on exactly the wrong thing because I didn't set forth the right operational procedures. And then they've done something for the entire day that has to be thrown out. So you have to figure out those operational procedures first off. Once you've, co- once you've got that type of documentation in place, it makes the process a lot easier. My, my philosophy, the company's philosophy is don't make orders easy to understand. Make them impossible to misunderstand. So once that flips, and, and I, a lot of people will think, oh, well, you know, you, you're, you're going too in-depth. You can never go too in-depth. Figure out your processes, write everything down, pretend that you're teaching somebody who's never done it before, pretend that you're teaching a six-year-old, understand all the steps, and then once you have that documented, you can those employees can always go back to that centralized location. So we have an online wiki as an example where you can go in, take a look at that information, and figure out exactly what you're supposed to do in any particular instance. So I'm not there sending emails or you know getting Skype calls from people saying, how do I do this or how do I do that? The operational procedures are already there. Is it a good idea to look for someone that's quite good at managing themselves or some, and perhaps coming up with ideas about restructuring the way things are done? Or should you look for someone who's compliant and easy more likely to follow what you want them to do? We've actually found, and we've done a, a, I don't have a definitive quantifiable answer for you as of yet, but I've been very interested in this subject and we've been doing a lot of um, Myers-Briggs psych testing, a lot of different variables that can affect the lifetime value of an employee on staff.com. So we've been assessing all of these types of things and really studying what makes a good long-term employee. And one of the most interesting things that we found was um, an introverted personality. So somebody who can work well alone, because if they're working from home, um, as you know, as I do, I'm more on the extroverted side of the spectrum. So I need to be in an environment like we have a local office here, We have about five or six employees here. I'm usually the only one in every day. But I have to get up and go to that place, 
sit down and work just because I need to communicate with other people, be in a different environment other than my home environment. Whereas um, another friend of mine that works at the company, Justin, he actually prefers to stay at home and he lives three blocks from the office. So, you know, he doesn't actually go to the office. He prefers to stay exactly where he is and he's a different personality type from me. But in my opinion, much more of a better fit when it comes to remote working relationships. So what I would look for is somebody who can manage themselves, someone who always asks questions, particularly if you're dealing with uh, labor in Southeast Asia. There's a philosophy of um, always presupposing that the boss is right, when in, the rea when in reality the boss is very rarely right. Um, in a lot of different instances. So you need to be able to make sure that that employee will ask the questions that they need to ask to actually complete the task. We have a great test for that uh, that I had done. I've always done this, but this is a perfect example of, of, uh, of the type of test that we'll pull off. So if we have a graphics designer test, we'll say, I've included a PSD of this image. Please perform these six changes to the PSD. Mm. Uh, and then what I'll actually do is instead of a PSD, I'll send them a .gif. So a .gif is a uh, all of the layers in that image have been collapsed, i.e. it's uneditable. Hmm. Whereas a PSD, you can pull out all the different layers and change them around. So the right answer, the perfect answer to this question is, you sent me a GIF, I need a .psd. But about 80% of people will go in and spend the next six or seven hours editing a .gif or recreating a completely new image, mm. which is incorrect because you just spent six hours of time that you could have very easily you know, gotten back had you just emailed me and said, you made a mistake. Yeah. So that's the philosophy that you want to be able to have is people that can work on their own, will call you on your bullshit when you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And... Um, and yeah, and, and in essence are just really great self-managers um, that can do the job. And I, I would call these types of people um, executors. So it's, it's quite tough to find the right person by the sound of it, because you're looking for an introvert, but looking for someone who's confident enough in their own abilities to say, I'm sorry, this isn't correct. Um, I want yeah. this instead. There's actually, there's a particular, um, and I can, I can send it, I can't remember exactly what it is, but there's a particular um, uh, psychological profile that we've looked at, which is somebody who is introverted but can actually do any task that you ask of them. So as an example, uh, this particular person could be a salesperson, which is an extroverted task, mm. but they wouldn't really enjoy it. So it's it's an interesting little psychological piece that we've that we've figured out. Again, I don't have definitive quantitative results for this because we really haven't gotten the end. We haven't gotten the amount of data that I really want. Mm. Um, but this is something I've been working on for the past six months, and it's a very interesting idea, of, particularly for us, because we want to be able to make sure the longer that an employee is hired and happy, and the employer is happy, the more money we make. So we want to be able to make sure that we're hiring the right type of people to the degree to which we can actually give them a test to find out whether they'll fit 
for remote working relationships. And hopefully we'll be able to roll that out in the next few months. But it's one of those things that, again, you need a lot of data to be able to figure out what the right fit is. So this isn't a conventional digital marketing conversation, but um, if you're running your own business and you're looking to manage your digital marketing activities and outsource, um, finding the right people is an essential part of that. And obviously this relates to that. However, I would like to segue into the second part of our conversation, which is Mm -hmm. your opinion on what's happening in digital marketing today. So that um, starts off with... Software I couldn't live without. What software do you currently use in your business that if someone took away from you, it would significantly impact the success of your business? I'd say for us, it's a lot of our tracking data. Um, We roll out, we just rolled out a new feature last month and uh, it's in beta right now. And we're trying to figure out whether people are using it, how long they're using it for, uh, what they're doing with it. Tools like Intercom as an example. So intercom.io is a fantastic tool to be able to figure that out. Um, Intercom is so great. I can actually have a, uh, I can have messaging fire off dependent upon different variables. So let's say with regards to this new feature, someone is on that page where this new feature is located. If they haven't taken any action, if they haven't clicked on anything, um, I can have a chat pop up that will pop up in the bottom right hand corner asking them if they need any help with this particular feature. Or I can provide a little video tutorial, find out whether they clicked on it, find out how long they went through it. So I can start to collect metrics on exactly what the adoption rate is. And then I can also go in and directly message those people within the app so that next time they log into the dashboard, I can have a conversation with them saying, hey, you tried to use this feature three or four times and it looks like it's not working for you. Why? Um, that's a fantastic tool, intercom.io. To a lesser degree, things like Heap Analytics and Mixpanel are also great tools for anybody who really is um, a marketer like me but doesn't have direct development experience. Something like Heap Analytics and Mixpanel will allow you to go in and, in essence, code out um, without doing any coding, you can query your database to figure out what are people doing in your website at all times. So how long, you know, how long did David spend on this page of the dashboard? Oh, he spent two minutes and 28 seconds on January 1st and three minutes and 12 seconds on January the 15th. And it looks like he hasn't, uh, he hasn't converted yet. He's still on a 30-day trial. Why is he still on a 30-day trial? And we start to come up with these variables that we can look at. So as an example, if people haven't done at least one interview within the first week of signing up for staff.com, we know that they won't actually convert or their chances of converting is quite statistically low. So we're trying to push everything towards getting that first interview done. And if we can get them to that point, then we know that their chance of conversion is quite high. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's significantly high um, in comparison to the mean. So for us, we just we use tools like this to figure out statistically where is that person um what are the the core factors that relate to that person's conversion or any person's conversion, and then try to push them towards that. Facebook has another model that they're they're one of the first companies that really made this process famous, which is if they add, I think it was ten friends in seven days. So they knew if you added ten friends in under seven days, 
you were going to be a committed user of Facebook. And they just focused every all of their marketing on getting those 10 friends in seven days. Um, same, you need to figure out what that core metric is for your business and then move people towards that. Even if it's to the point of someone signing up for an email on a blog, right? We're currently doing that right now with our content campaign and we're playing with pop-ups and rollovers and all these different types of things. Well, we have to figure out how many times do they hit content before, if they read 10 pieces of our content, will they, uh, will they sign up for an email? Will they sign up for the email newsletter? Is it three pieces of content? Is it no pieces of content? Will they just do it you know, the first time they come to the website? I don't know. We have to figure out those answers. The other question then relates to this, correlates to that. If they sign up for the, e for the blog where we're sending them content, how many pieces of content do they have to be exposed to before they sign up for a trial of staff.com? Is it 10 pieces? Is it 20 pieces? Does it matter? Is there any statistical correlation between that? And if it's 20 pieces, well, guess what? We're just going to start to run a drip campaign to send you absolutely fantastic pieces of content, content that we know already makes you a loyal reader of our blog and moves us and moves them down the sales funnel. So I would say for me, I mean, maybe that's not the stereotypical answer, but when you're dealing at scale, I feel like once you have enough users to get a statistically significant answer, you have to be tracking all your metrics properly. And if you aren't, um, you're only guessing. And to me, guessing makes me really uncomfortable, particularly when it's my money on the line in the business. Mm. Well, I mean, that's um, big data becoming very, very important. You get a lot of people focusing on inbound marketing now and using tools like HubSpot to ensure yeah. that um, those metrics are are looked at on a regular basis. But those are things by the sound of it that you're doing very well at the moment. Let's move on to something that you're not doing quite so well. I wish I would have. So I'd like you to look back on the very first day that you're involved in trying to market a business online. What didn't you do so well? What do you wish that you would have done differently? Oh boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of things. I mean, we, even today, if we're not failing at nine out of the 10 things that we're trying, we're not trying fast enough mm. or hard enough. Um, I try crazy ideas all the time and we fail at them a lot. And I think that that's one major piece of it. But the, actually, I think failure is good. The faster and cheaper you can fail, the faster you can figure out what works, uh, which is my personal philosophy. But I would say first time business, like the first business that I ever started was an online tutoring company. And uh, we had almost 100 tutors at the epoch of that particular company they were managing everyone through Skype and I started that business with I think like a $30 GoDaddy server with a WordPress you know front end and coded it all together myself thought oh you know what I'm gonna save the money I'm gonna learn how to how to uh, play around with CSS and 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 build you know my own website and uh, I remember I remember blogging I remember getting into blogging in a big way and just doing a horrible job of it um, and also too, in that, at that point, this is, I'm going back at least eight or nine years, mm -hmm. blog, SEO was very different from what it is today. Like you could put up anything and you could put up like 400 words of content that really didn't make sense. 
And as long as it was optimized in the right way, it would rank. Uh, now, Google doesn't let you do that. It, I actually think it makes a much, much better internet Absolutely. because of it. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it, it, in another context, it's like in the early days, you could get away with so much more than, than you can today. It was easy to strike uh, oil back 10 years ago or so. Oh, it was so easy to strike oil at that point. But I remember putting together a blog, getting probably about 20 or 30,000 uniques a month. And at 20 or 30,000 uniques a month, I was doing pretty well on the blog, but the tutoring site was not working at all. I remember for the first six months, we didn't get a single, we got a couple bytes, but I didn't get a conversion. Mm. And then I remember, I think it was around Christmas, I got that first conversion. Literally, I saw, you know, PayPal email in my in my box, $500, you know, recurring or something like that. And mm. I just, it was mind blowing. I, I thought to myself, because until that point, it's only theory, mm. right? Particularly for people that run their first business. It's all theory. They talk about, oh yeah, I'm doing $300,000 a month in doing this, or I'm doing a million dollars a month doing that. It's all theory. It's all that what other people are telling you until it actually happens to you. And then you think, wow, someone's actually taken their money that, you know, that they worked hard for and they're going to give it to you and you're going to give them something back. And that was a huge moment for me. And then that actually very quickly, I realized that we kind of achieved market salinity at that point and, or sorry, achieved a certain market point where um, we were in the right stride and sales just started coming in very quickly after that. But I would say for me, um, a lot of the biggest, bigger problems that I had at the beginning was doing everything on my own. Right. That was probably the biggest one. I have learned now that um, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So there's not there's an entire team that's working on marketing in the company, and the majority of the the, the achievements that are being occurred in the company have nothing to do with me. I'm maybe keeping an eye on it, but fundamentally, I'm not the one that's executing on it. And that's actually, it's it's something that you really have to evolve as a entrepreneur and a and a management uh, person to be able to figure that out. Which is, you're probably not that good at a lot of things. You're probably really bad at most things that you do in the business. And if someone can do it better than you, then you should replace yourself immediately. And that's a very um, like I had a conversation about affiliate marketing and we have an affiliate program that we're putting together. And I said, I'm not the best person for this job. Someone else needs to do it. We need to, you know, you're, I'm looking at, uh, six people and I'm looking around the room and saying, well, three of you have had experience in affiliate marketing and I know what it is, but I haven't done it before. Hmm. So I'm not the one that can execute on this. You guys need to take the responsibility to do it. And that's a very stressful thing for an entrepreneur to do. Uh, the last year of, of my entrepreneurial evolution has really been focused on uh, delegation, trying to be able to make sure that I'm not running the business on my own and that I'm giving the business to other people to execute on different parts. But it's also of, what you like doing as well, because um, yeah, it's 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 you know after so many years of experience, you're going to be good at doing lots of different things. You know, I I can manage pay per click campaigns fairly comfortably. It bores me to tears. I don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say you're you're right in that context. However, there are some things that I really like doing. 
that I know I'm not the best at and I know that the other person is better at it. And for me to actually give that up is sometimes something I don't really want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I think I'm having a ton of fun doing this or that. Like as an example, I love looking at data right? I have, a, I have a minor, my degrees are in sociology, but I, in essence, have a minor in statistics because the program that I was running through in grad school really focused on that. And I know that um, the, there's another particular employee I'm thinking in my head has a much better grasp of statistics than I do. They can run the numbers faster. They can run the numbers better, but I really like doing it. And it's, it's, a, it's an issue because it's like, I love playing around with this, but is that the best use of my time? There's a, a book, I think it's The One Thing. Mm. I can't remember. Maybe, I, I know, maybe. know the bit you're talking about. I can't think of the author, actually. Yeah, so that is, I read that a few months ago. To me, that's what you need to do. Figure out your one thing, figure out what you're best at, and then just go and execute on that. And don't be, um, you know, be the level five executive if I'm taking the good to great type of analogy. I don't know if you've read Good to Great, but it's another great book, particularly if you're scaling an executive management team. Um, Level five executive is somebody who lacks ego. And it's really an interesting problem because you have entrepreneurs who are usually, you know, egotistical, um, usually not really psychologically stable people. And then you have on the other side, what will actually produce success in a major business is people that lack ego and people that are able to say, yeah, you're better at this. You should do it instead of me. It's a, it's a really interesting book. Gary Keller, the author of The One Thing. Ah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> um, moving on to... The This or That Round. So this is the quick response round. Ten quick questions. Try not to think about the answer too much. I'm just looking for your gut's reaction. Ready right. to go? Yep. Email or Twitter? Email. Audio or video? Video. Affiliates or display advertising? <sighs> display advertising. Facebook or Google Plus? Facebook. Online press releases or one-on-one relations? One-on-one relations. Paid search or SEO? SEO. Email contact form or telephone number? Telephone. Website or app? Oh, man, that's a hard one. I'm going to say website today, but app probably in the future. Social subscriber or email subscriber? Email. And local marketing or global marketing? Global marketing. Yay! Taking us right on to... The $10,000 question. If I was to give you $10,000 and you had to spend it over the next few days on a single digital marketing activity, what would you spend it on and how would you measure success? I would say for me right now, it would probably be added to it would probably be added to my growth team. And I would have uh, my data scientist. I, I'd hire a data scientist for the next two weeks. I'd hire a really good developer that understood front end quite well. And we would focus on trying to get our K factor, our referral factor up. So K factor is a and you can Google this. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a formula to show how apt uh, or how many users get referred from a single user. So as an example, 
um, when Airbnb, or sorry, not Airbnb, when Dropbox had their refer a friend program and you get 250 megs and I get 250 megs, mm. they had a K factor and don't quote me on this, but it was over one from what I understand. Um, so that meant for every customer they acquired, they acquired more than they acquired 1.1 customers. Right. Yeah. For every single user they acquired. Mm. That is just exponential growth. It's mathematical growth. That's the type of thing that I would look for. Like we've run our own K factor numbers and our K factor numbers are not 1.1. Mm. Um, <laughs> they're significantly lower than that. Like for every 20 users we acquire, we probably require one statistically. Mm. Uh, like we can track that back mathematically. So I actually right now would probably set up a really interesting referral program. I've been looking at a lot of stuff connected to referral programs. Um, Airbnb, as an example, has a couple articles that they just put about put out about their referral program. They started at about one percent of uh, referred users would refer other users. Now that are about, they're at about ten percent. So it, you can think of run the math, right? If you've got an ad campaign, as an example, and you've got an ad campaign that generates customers, generates 100 customers, and one of them refers a friend, that's one calculation. But then if you have an ad campaign and you have 100 customers that generate 10 more customers for you, that significantly changes your ad campaign on the front end. You've, in essence, made that funnel much larger due to that. And that's the type of stuff that I'm very interested in. Um, the direct marketing stuff is something that I think gets you started, but then once you're off to the races, running that in essence exponential growth is is really the the big piece that we're trying to um, target at uh, at staff.com. So for me it would be again getting that getting that funnel up and running and getting it as viral as possible. Right. Okay. I'll have to have a look at this uh, key number actually because I, I haven't encountered it being called that actually but I do remember a long time ago back in it must have been about 2005 uh, 2006 or so um, going to a talk by one of the founders of Eventbrite and um, he um, talked about the exact same thing but he called it viral coefficient um, but he the same thing yeah, yeah exactly yeah same calculation uh, the other thing too is take a look at other people's networks what they call OPNs uh, I just watched a talk actually by Dan Martell, who runs Clarity.fm. Fantastic talk about how he scaled Clarity. And he talked about studying how you can basically take control of other people's networks and grow your platform through them. So with Airbnb as an example, I think they I think it's quite well known right now, their Craigslist hack. So what they did is they built a piece of software where if you posted a job or sorry, if you posted a place on Airbnb, their software could automatically post that posting on Craigslist and pull that traffic back. And not only that, when you posted, hey, I'm looking for something for a short-term stay on Craigslist for a particular city, the software would automatically email you saying, check out Airbnb, here are the top five places mm. in that area. And they got away with that for nine months before Craigslist shut them down. I mean, that's a, they were doing, I think they, from zero to 2010, 2011, they had 50,000 um, successful uh, sessions, hostings mm. on Airbnb, and it was almost entirely through wow. this Craigslist hack. So when you think of that, and that's zero marketing, right? They, they built software to leverage that other network. Um, 
a lot of out of box thinking and a lot of creative thinking. But for me, it's one of those things that if you can get it, um, it gives you mathematical growth, which to me is is the best type. My number one takeaway. Well, Liam, you've offered a lot of great advice in our conversation, but what's the number one takeaway? What's the most important single step that our listeners need to take away and implement in their own businesses? I would say if you're interested in building a remote team, the biggest piece that I would leave with you is if you haven't done it before, start slowly. Um, Start with one person. Understand your processes understand your operational procedures before scaling. And once you have conquered that, again, you can be one of these companies that can build sales teams at half the cost or you know, digital marketing agencies, ad buy agencies at half the cost of your competitors. Uh, if your SEO guys can put out the same type, same amount of backlinks at the same quality for a quarter of the cost of your competitors, you win. Uh, so to me, that's what I would start with. A lot of people just want to go gangbusters and hire everybody. Don't do that. Slow down. Do it step by step and understand that. Uh, I know it's slow now, but by learning these fundamentals at the beginning, you'll be able to be that much more dangerous in six to 12 months. Wonderful. Well, that takes us to the end of our discussion today. Thanks so much for your time, your focus and your willingness to give back. What's the best way for our listeners to find out more about you and what you do? Just go to staff.com or uh, anybody can also email me too at liam at staff.com. Great stuff. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today on Digital Marketing Radio. Remember, you can get every interview before it's published as a podcast, delivered as a weekly digital magazine automatically to your tablet or smartphone. And that's for Apple or Android. Just go to digitalmarketingradio.com for links to where you can subscribe and join the rest of the Digital Marketing Radio posse. Catch you again soon. Digital